good afternoon, uh, everyone. Glad to see you all here today. Um, before we get started, would you uh, pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful, as we are every week, for the opportunity to gather together as the people of God and to hear your word read, proclaimed, sung. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a, a special sermon today in honor of Mother's Day. And as many of you know, my, my own mother died about five months ago, just before Christmas. So this is my first Mother's Day without a mom. Uh, I know some of you are going through similar experiences yourself. And it's kind of a strange feeling, to be honest, this whole mixture of emotions, there's this sadness and grief and sorrow, but also a sense of, honestly, a, a little bit of amazement. I mean, nobody on this planet knew me for as long as my mom did. After all, she carried me for nine long months. My mom was a, a wee little woman, and it turned out to be rather a large baby, so that was no mean feat in and of itself. Although I remember her saying over and over again how those moments, those days uh, being pregnant were some of the happiest days of her life, finally being pregnant, excited for the opportunity to have a child at last. And then there she was walking with me through all the wide-eyed wonderment of, of childhood. I'd scraped knees and all, followed by several years of carefully negotiating peace as we navigated the uh, adolescent years and then the choppy waters of adult life as we both had to learn totally new ways of interacting with each other as adults. It wasn't always easy, and we made a lot of mistakes, both of us. I miss her, and I'm amazed at her. Looking back, I marvel at her ability to keep moving forward, to persevere despite the odds, to face into the never-ending challenges that kept coming her way. And what kept her going wasn't just grim determination or dull duty. It was love. It was love, self-sacrificing, all-enduring, long-persevering love. Motherhood is a labor of love, and she labored hard. <laughs> And I see that same kind of steadfast love in mothers all around me. I see it in the single moms who have to be both mom and dad, nurturing and providing and protecting and leading and never resting or having a chance to have some space for themselves, giving every last part of themselves to the work of raising the children that God has given them. I think of the young moms whose lives are filled with, with sunshine and laughter and joy and delight but also tears and frustration and total exhaustion, sometimes all at the same time, all right? That God has given you a house filled with little engines that never stop running, right? It's perpetual motion in your sphere of existence. Even your bed is not your own. I think of the grandmothers who love so generously as a parent at a distance, 
trying not to step on any toes, even as they work through the own memories of their successes and failures as young mothers. And I think of my own wife, the mother of our children, whose generosity and energy appears to be boundless. A woman who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. Mothers never stop. You never stop. It's like the pause button on, on the remote control of your life has just been broken off. Like There is no pause button for you. And so it's an honor to celebrate mothers today, as we should be doing every day, honestly. And we're going to focus our study this, this afternoon around the story of Hannah, which you just heard read a few moments ago. And while it's Mother's Day, and our, our passage is about a mother, the main point applies to each and every one of us, men and women alike, young and old. It doesn't matter who you are, the message is the same persevere through the powerful presence of God. Persevere through the powerful presence of God. Don't let go. Don't give up. Don't let anyone or anything get in your way. Keep on keeping on. Determine to be determined. As we just read, there is no one like our God, and he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. So whoever you are and whatever you're going through right now, persevere through the powerful presence of God. Well, the first uh, lesson, I hope you all have your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of texts here. And the first lesson we learn from Hannah's life is this, persevere in times of pain. Now, I know that's not like a, a super cheery topic for like a Mother's Day sermon, okay? But hang in there. We're tracing Hannah's story. And, and although it starts in kind of a dark place, it's going to end with joy. So hang in there with me. We're going to get there at the end of the sermon. But look with me at the text. Hannah's story takes place about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. This is the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the people of God are living in the promised land, but they've slipped into moral and spiritual chaos. It's a dark and perilous world with threats, both foreign and domestic. But out of that darkness, a light is about to shine. God is on the cusp of launching a new era in redemptive history. And the hero of our story, the humble young woman, Hannah, is going to play a pivotal role. But first, we meet this certain man named Elkanah from Ramathaim in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Jerusalem. And this man has two wives, Hannah and Penina. As you might expect, things are not going well for a man with two wives. Because although Penina has been busy cranking out kids, we learn that Hannah has none. Look at verse 3 here. Uh, year by year, they would travel to Shiloh to make an annual sacrifice. And year by year, the routine would be the same. This large and growing family would travel together. They would worship together. They would eat together. And then they would return together. 
It wasn't a particularly long trip to make, but every step of the way would have been painful for Hannah. A reminder of her lack, a reminder of her failure, a reminder of her loss and her emptiness. Look at verse 7. You see that same phrase there that we have in verse 3, right? And so it went on year by year. Hannah was trapped by the relentless march of time, day after day, month after month, year after year, without any change, without any hope, just unceasing mockery from Penina, punctuated by these annual trips to Shiloh. Look at verse 6. And her, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. As if infertility didn't cause enough grief in and of itself, Hannah had to deal with the constant presence of her rival, always poking and prodding and provoking her. Today, if someone's hassling on you online, you can you know, mute the thread or you can block them entirely if you want. But in this case, there was no escape. They're in the same house. There's nowhere to turn. Every day, Penina's children would be a reminder to Hannah of everything she could not have or do. And every single day, Penina was there to rub it in. Hannah's life was miserable. However, she wasn't alone. Now, we don't know much about Elkanah, but it's clear that he cared deeply for her. Look at verse 5 here. He gave her a double portion of the sacrificial meals. Why? Because he loved her. He was engaged, connected with her life. He's not ignoring her or berating her or putting her down. He wants to help her, even if he doesn't really know what he's doing or how to go about doing that. After all, he could give her a triple portion of the, of the sacrificial offering if she wanted. She's still not eating anything. Hannah feels hopeless. But Elkanah feels helpless. And I think the same kind of situation often plays out in our own marriages and families today. Our problems can begin to weigh so heavily on us that it feels as if nobody else notices or cares. But sometimes the truth that we don't always want to hear is that those dark feelings we're experiencing don't always reflect reality. God has often put other people in our lives who want to help. They're trying to help. They're trying to reach out if only we could see them. Because Hannah wasn't actually alone. Elkanah asks her in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? I'm honestly kind of astonished to find this kind of language right here in the Bible. We hear all the time about the sort of repressive, patriarchal society of the Old Testament. But that's not what I read right here. Elkanah can see Hannah's pain. He feels her heartache. His questions are sort of rhetorical. He knows why she's feeling this way. It's because of her infertility. 
But what he's really trying to do is engage with her, to connect with her, to reach out to his wife. He wants her to see that he's there for her. But sadly, at this point, she's not able to see it. So I want to encourage you, if you're in a relationship or a situation where the person you love seems hopeless, where it seems like they're lost, keep reaching out. Keep praying for them. Keep talking to them. Keep trying new ways to connect and to to get beyond the walls that they've set up. But conversely, if you're the one who's trapped under the oppressive weight of that suffering, if you're the one who's convinced that nobody cares, that you're all alone, I want you to recognize there are people around you who are looking for ways to get in. Brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, parents, grandparents, who like Elkanah, they they, they may not have the right words to say. They don't really know what they're doing. All they can see is that you're suffering. They know that there's something wrong and they want to help. Will you let them in? Will you see them? Will you give them an opening? But look, Elkanah isn't the only one trying to make his presence known in Hannah's life. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Look, the Lord is the one who closed her womb. The Lord is the one who had closed her womb. Hannah couldn't see this yet, but the author is clear. Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who stands behind this entire situation. Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who closed her womb, who kept her from getting pregnant. In fact, he's the reason we're reading anything at all about this otherwise unremarkable young woman. Now, I know on the one hand, maybe this creates a whole series of new questions for you. Like, what in the world do you mean God closed her womb? That doesn't seem right. The text doesn't answer those questions at this moment, although we're going to get there in chapter 2. But what I want you to see here is that Yahweh is on the move. He's doing something. A few weeks ago in our systematic theology class, we looked at the doctrine of providence, which simply teaches God's intimate, hands-on involvement in this world. And that's exactly what we see here. Hannah's suffering is not random, it's not purposeless, it's not meaningless. God stands directly behind it all, working out a plan that will lead not just to the birth of a son, but one day to the birth of the son, Jesus Christ himself. For Hannah's son, Samuel, will be the one to anoint David and launch the Davidic dynasty that will eventually lead to the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And although our own lives are not destined to play such a vaunted role in salvation history, God is no less involved in your day-to-day existence. Your suffering and struggles don't escape his notice or exist outside of his sovereign plan. Look at verse 3. 
Hannah's God and your God are one and the same. Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? The king of all the angelic armies, the Lord of the entire spiritual realm. That's your God actively at work in your life. As the British Bible scholar Joyce Baldwin puts it, she says, he has infinite resources and power at his disposal as he works on behalf of his people. The Lord of hosts is with you, even now. And the same Lord of hosts will strengthen you and sustain you and help you to endure along whatever road it is that he has appointed for you to walk down. As we move along here, this is Shiloh, situated on top of a small hill. It's no longer a particularly eye-catching spot. However, for nearly 300 years, this was a center of Jewish worship for the people of God. Long before Jerusalem became the nation's capital, this was a place chosen by Joshua to be the final resting place of the ark and the tabernacle. It was roughly in the middle of the promised land. It was a perfect spot to, to worship God, protected by mountains and valleys. And so it was to Shiloh that Elkanah and his family went year by year for the annual sacrifice. Look with me in verse 9 here. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This powerful petition to God introduces our second lesson uh, from Hannah's life today. Persevere in prayer. I want to draw your attention in particular to, to three key aspects here in Hannah's prayer. First, her prayer is heartfelt. Hannah is deeply troubled as we already noticed. The Hebrew word for deeply distressed right here, it's, it's mara, which means bitter. It's the same word that Naomi used to describe herself in, in the book of Ruth. Remember, Naomi and Ruth, they, they come back to Bethlehem, and the people of Bethlehem are like, hey, it's Naomi. And she says, no longer call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Lord has dealt exceedingly bitterly with me. And Hannah, too, is feeling bitter. But unlike Naomi, she takes all this pain and she brings it to God. Moreover, she doesn't try to squelch or hide her emotions here. This prayer is not an empty exercise. She is literally crying out her heart to God. She is weeping uncontrollably. As she tells Eli in verse 15, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Now I admit, not every prayer in our lives has to or, or will 
elicit the same kind of depths of emotional outpouring, nor does the intensity or fervor of our prayers somehow force God's hand in action. But Hannah's prayer should be a strong encouragement and challenge for us to consider the way in which we pray. I mean, how often do we couch our prayers in in sort of formal religious language or settle into rote patterns as opposed to, to simply crying out from the bottom of our hearts? Can you really say you've been pouring out your soul to God? And when was the last time any of us cried, like literally cried in our prayers? It is good, it is right for us to bring the full extent of our emotions to God and not try to hide them behind some kind of veneer of of religiosity. But secondly, we see that Hannah's prayer is honest. Hannah doesn't hold anything back here, okay? Not from Eli, not from God. Look at verse 16. She says, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. In other words, she's not just upset. She's angry. Vex means angry. She is angry. And that anger has settled down into her heart. She's battling resentment. She's voicing her fears and doubts and anger and grief and frustration. She's done holding everything back, done pretending, which is, I think that's why she's so incredulous when when Eli uh, accuses her of being drunk. She's like, are you kidding? I've never been more open and honest in my life. And Eli, hearing her response, realizes her sincerity almost immediately, responding to the honesty in her prayers. So he says in verse 17, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And here's the thing, if your prayer life lacks vitality, if you feel like it lacks substance, perhaps it's because you've drifted into a place where you're trying to hide all the real stuff from God, hiding your real sense, the anger the resentment, the bitterness, the frustration, hiding the real struggles while only praying for the the surface issues, the things that are comfortable to pray about, trying to pretend like you're not really angry, as if God is no different than the person sitting next to you in the pew that that can't see your heart or know what's in your mind. Look, if you can't be honest with God, I mean brutally honest about what's really going on in your life. I don't want to pray right now. I don't know what to say right now. I'm so mad, I don't know how to handle this situation. If you can't be that brutally honest with God, the only one who can do anything with your prayers, the one who already knows what's in your heart and mind, why are you praying at all? So Hannah's prayer was heartfelt, it was honest, but it was also humble. Look at the content of Hannah's prayer. The single heaviest burden that she carries in her life is infertility. 
The deepest desire of her heart is to get pregnant, to feel that baby kicking and moving, to hold that child in her arms and know, this is mine, finally. But look at her prayer. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then what will she do? Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Look at her posture here. Over and over and over again, she refers to herself as the Lord's servant. Hannah is clear. God doesn't exist to serve her needs. She exists to serve his. Fundamental to all true worship is the willingness and the ability to set aside our own plans and agendas in order to serve God. But that doesn't keep Hannah from still expressing the deepest desire on her heart and humbly making the biggest request she can imagine for God to give her a son. It's a pattern we see repeated in the ministry and the, and the teaching of Jesus as well, right? Pray without ceasing. Pray for everything. Pray for, uh, for anything and everything. But at the same time, pray according to God's will and pray recognizing that we should be willing to give everything up to follow our Lord and Savior. But Hannah goes one step further still offering to present any future child back to God, relinquishing all rights to retain him as her own. Like Abraham laying down Isaac on the altar, or Jesus laying down his life on the cross, Hannah is willing to give up her rights as a parent so that this child might serve the Lord all the days of his life. Now, the point here is not that that vows sort of force God's hand, but it begs the question, how tightly are you holding on to the blessings in your life? I mean, when God answers a prayer, whatever it may be, is your first reaction to cling more tightly to it or to keep it open in your hands before the Lord, recognizing that everything you have comes from God, and everything you have returns to God. I know, that's easier said than done, especially when we've been praying for something for so long and yearning for something so deeply. And yet, as we see here in verse 28, that's exactly what Hannah does, right? Nine months of pregnancy, What joy, what excitement she must have been feeling. Then on top of that, three years of of precious moments watching uh, little Samuel take his first steps and learn how to talk. Time spent laughing and crying together. And then after all that, to still follow through on her vow, returning to Shiloh and willingly Gladly, confidently handing Samuel over to Yahweh. It's astonishing. And the only way she could do that 
The only way that we can ever hope to come close to doing the same with the blessings God brings into our lives is by heartfelt, honest, and humble prayer, reflecting a deep and abiding trust in the Lord. And as a side note, I should note here, many years later, the Lord did, in fact, bless Hannah with five more children, three sons, two daughters. God is so good. So the first lesson we learned from Hannah here uh, was to persevere through pain. The second lesson was to persevere by prayer. But there's one last lesson now for us to consider, and that's to persevere in praise. What do you do when your team wins the big competition, the, the, the big event, right? You pray. Yeah, I mean, you celebrate. <laughs> It'd be good to pray too, but you celebrate. It's exciting. You get the good news. You, you celebrate that. And what do you do when God comes through in a significant way in your life? We respond with praise. Look at the first two verses of chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah's joy-filled song of thanksgiving is as striking as anything written later by Asaph or David. It displays a depth of confidence in God's uh, ability to, to lead and guide and provide that's, that's largely been missing from the, the storyline since the time of sort of Joshua and Moses. And a thousand years later, this song will be used by the young Virgin Mary to express her own joy upon learning that she is pregnant with the Messiah. In fact, this song is a song which brings encouragement to Christians all the way to this day, a bold reminder of the power of the Lord who holds all things in the palm of his hand. And all this from a humble woman who was trapped in the darkness of depression and anxiety. So how do you persevere? Even after leaving your son to serve the Lord at the tabernacle? For Hannah, the answer is joy-filled praise and worship. Look, she says, my heart exalts. My horn is exalted. My mouth derides my enemies. I rejoice in your salvation. She's moved from being the passive recipient of, of all these hurtful, harmful words and lies of Penina to actively declaring to the world these deep truths about the almighty God whom she serves. It's an incredible transformation. Clearly, as Hannah says here, there is none holy like the Lord. None besides you. No rock like our God. Moms, you know what this looks like. More than that, you know what this feels like, right? When your kids are young and, and you go somewhere new or different or, or they're just lonely or tired or bored or hungry or fed up. And, and whatever it is you're doing, pretty soon you find your kid like wrapped around your leg. I mean like 
like full body wrapped around your leg. Doesn't matter if you're talking or trying to eat food or, 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 or getting a cup of coffee. It's like they cannot get close enough to you. And that's the image I think Hannah is trying to convey here. It's not just that God is holy and powerful in some distant, far-off sense of the word, but he's also up close and personal. He's that safe place, that rock that we cling to tightly with all our strength. But Hannah's song goes deeper still. Look at verses 3 through 8. All of this whole section focuses on the all-encompassing sovereignty of God over every aspect of our lives, from birth to death and everything in between. And in particular, we see the way in which God works to reverse the world-warping power of sin. So if you look through these verses, the feeble will be strengthened, the hungry will be fed, the barren will produce children, the dead will be brought to life, the poor will be made rich, the low will be exalted, and the poor will sit with princes. It sounds like Isaiah 61, which, which Jesus read at the inauguration of his ministry. In fact, Hannah's prayer here is nothing less than a prophetic vision of the coming kingdom of God, where the proud and the mighty are laid low, while the humble are raised up. It's a preview of Jesus' upside-down teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. More than that, Hannah's song is a glimpse of the world-changing power the Holy Spirit would bring through the work of his disciples as they began to take the gospel out into the world. And that same Holy Spirit power courses through your veins today as well. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of these truths because we're so quick to get distracted, so quick to forget it's why, on the one hand, we're constantly stressing personal Bible reading and prayer. Excellent. But it's also why we gather together like this every Sunday. To break bread together, to hear God's word proclaimed together, and yes, to sing together. It's so important because it's one of the ways in which God has ordained to help us persevere through these times of praise and worship. You know, I was reading this week uh, about the famous British preacher Charles uh, Spurgeon, who was frequently plagued with bouts of anxiety and depression. But he kept turning back to the promises of God for comfort. And once in a letter to a friend, he said, he said this, in the night of sorrow, believers are like nightingales, and they sing in the darkness. There is no real night to a man or woman of a nightingale spirit. In other words, just as nightingales are known for singing in the dark, even when all the other birds are asleep, so too should believers be able to sing in the middle of whatever darkness they find themselves. Maybe not always literally singing, but, 
but nevertheless choosing to proclaim the never-changing power of God in the face of impossible odds. Hannah sang in the darkness. She pressed through the pain. She persevered in prayer and she found the Lord waiting for her on the other side. My prayer today is that we would not just marvel at Hannah and sort of put her up on a pedestal as this, this hero of faith, but that we would actually go one step further, that we would try to model some part of her life in our own. Because if God can work through an ordinary, humble woman like, like Hannah, he can work through ordinary, regular moms and dads and men and women and sons and daughters like you and me. So press on this week in humble, confident assurance that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies is at your side and never, ever, ever give up. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for this reminder from Hannah's life of your never-ending goodness to us, your faithfulness to us, your all-sustaining, powerful presence with us, your plans for us. And Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to persevere as Hannah did and bring you all the praise and glory and honor and worship as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.